Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of What the Politics. Today, we're going to talk about a few things that are very relevant in today's culture, including cancel culture and Gen Z. But before we begin our conversation, I'm going to go ahead and ask our guest to please introduce herself. Hello, my name is Professor Melissa Deckman. I'm a professor of political science at Washington College, which is in Chestertown, Maryland. I'm also an affiliated scholar with PRRI, which is the Public Religion Research Institute. All right, so my first question for you today is, is when it comes to Gen Z and their religious views, what what has your research or what has your um, studies kind of shown in terms of what they believe in or what they don't believe in? So like millennials, Gen Z Americans have increasingly become less religious. Uh, So currently I found in some surveys that I've collected and also some survey data collected by Public Religion Research Institute, which by the way is a terrific resource. So if if folks wanna actually go and look at um, some, some data themselves, they can go and do that or download the data there. But when it comes to Gen Z, roughly four in 10 Gen Z Americans are religiously unaffiliated, which means that they don't identify as an evangelical or a Catholic or or Jewish. Um, It doesn't mean, however, that four in 10 Gen Z Americans are atheists, um, but it just means that they don't necessarily see themselves as housed with the sort of the traditional religious bodies that many Americans historically have been aligned with. Definitely. And, and I was kind of reading uh, uh, your, your research that you, you did on this, uh, the religious unaffiliation. And in my mind, I kind of think like, you know, Gen Z's millennials kind of gear more towards the, the liberal side of the political sphere. And in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, Republican, the Republican conservative values are really deeply rooted in all of those religious ideologies. So could that be kind of a, a driving factor for why they're kind of stepping back, you know, that church versus state sort of thing. Yeah, there are a number of reasons that um, both Gen Z Americans and millennials are less religious. One is that you have a generation of millennials um, and Gen Z Americans who have parents that are less religious. So if you look at the sociology of religion over time, it's not uncommon for young Americans to sort of not go to churches often or leave their synagogues. Uh, because they're moving, they're not rooted in communities. Um, But traditionally what's always happened is that those folks tend to get married and they wanna raise their kids in the tradition that they grew up in. And that's happening less, so that's one factor. You know, a lot of times people who are religiously unaffiliated marry other people who aren't particularly religious. And so that sort of mechanism of bringing folks back into church or bringing folks back into their religious tradition uh, is, is less, I think, salient today. But that's certainly not the only reason we're seeing, I think, more younger Americans be less religious. Part of it is that infusion of religion and politics. Um, For many Gen Z Americans, um, they don't, they tend to affiliate religion with uh, Republicanism. And so as my data have shown, Gen Z Americans tend to lean more to the political left and the right. So that's part of what's going on, the infusion of too much religion and politics from the perspective of some Gen Z Americans. And finally, I would say 
Um, for many Gen Z Americans, they're very open to uh, the rights of LGBTQ Americans. And so a lot of conservative religious traditions, not all, but a lot of them uh, tend to be against or the expansion of the rights for those Americans. And so that sort of mentality, I think, has made religion off-putting for some Gen Z Americans. So it's really a variety of factors that are at play here. I'm curious to know, and I, and I want your intake on um, our perspective on, on uh, kind of like this idea that we might see political candidates not run on religious views in the future because the generation that's going to be voting and, and the upcoming generations aren't as interested in hearing one nation under God as more like everyone has equal rights to health care and uh, uh, love who they love and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I think you're seeing it already to, to, to some extent, right, that you see, I think, candidates who are democratic to not to talk about religion as much. I mean, even, you know, a couple decades ago, um, it was very common for democratic candidates to talk a lot about their own faith traditions. Uh, Bill Clinton did that. Barack Obama talked a lot about that as well. Um, and I think as you have more unaffiliated younger Americans coming up, if a significant portion of those folks believe that religion is linked to anti-gay views, you know, I think it makes sense for some candidates to say, look, I'm going to, I want to be trying to be inclusive, so I'm not going to necessarily talk about, about those ideas. We, of course, have this larger narrative of um, the notion of what we often call civil religion. So this, this idea that, um, you know, America is a, is a religious country, but we're also one that accepts all religions. And so that, I think, ingrained in our history, I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon, but certainly among younger Americans, I think the salience of religion for them is just not the same as it was, say, three, four or five decades ago. Got to unmute myself here. <laughs> I want to move into kind of, you know, the activism aspect of these, uh, the Gen Z generation. You know, me and Victoria, I think, spoke in our, our last podcast, even about how, you know, it seems like this generation really, their idea of political participation is activism, going out and, and you know, protesting things they don't believe in or doing these marches and things like that. So what kind of thoughts do you have on, on you know, why that's their center of focus? Yeah, so I think one of the things I've uncovered in doing this larger project over the past couple of years with Gen Z Americans and their politics is that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, is that, you know, Gen Z Americans primarily are motivated by a couple of issues. Um, one is climate change activism. Another is uh, racial justice, as we've seen in the past year after the Floyd killing, and then also uh, preventing gun violence. Um, now, not all Gen Z Americans are liberal in those positions, right? There's definitely a variety of opinions, but I think the political momentum is really on the left when it comes to activism among Gen Z Americans. And actually, I think what's uh, helped Gen Z Americans in terms of participating in climate strikes or racial justice march, Black Lives Matter movement, um, the Women's March, right, that we saw after the election of Donald Trump is social media. It seems kind of like, well, aren't they just online? Well, they are online. They're using social media um, in a lot of ways, but they're also using social media to organize effectively. And so I think a lot of Gen Z Americans who are politically active are very savvy about how they use social media, but they also use it as a way to uh, help inspire people to do face-to-face -face politics in addition to just being on Twitter or being on Instagram or TikTok. So there's kind of, kind of a marriage of those two things happening among Gen Z um, uh, today a lot in American politics, I think. 
When it comes to um, one candidate who is now an elected official that people seem to say used um, social media really well is um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, and, and we definitely see that, that she does these like Instagram videos um, where she's like cooking in her kitchen and she's talking about, you know, healthcare and all that kind of stuff. Um, and kind of just like erasing that barrier of um, being on a political stage and more being real with with the audience. Um, and even her background, she had some uh, background in terms of, of politics. She was involved in several organizations that helped her do more grassroots movements. Um, do you see that being like staying, like, like candidates connecting with their audience, not through a political stage or this kind of like, um, uh, where, where it's set up to be like a political con convention, but more just through social media. And do you see issues with that kind of connection? Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned AOC. Um, so my book that I'm writing is really about uh, Gen Z women in particular, because my data are finding that Gen Z women are more engaged in politics than Gen Z men overall. And among progressive activists that I've interviewed at least, uh, her name comes up repeatedly because they find her to be a very inspiring figure for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned. I think the fact that she's so adept at using social media and um, really lends her a sense of um, authenticity for this generation. They feel like they can relate to what she's saying. And she's really, as you indicate, sort of breaking down those barriers of, we often think about political leaders behind a podium on a stage, as you mentioned, but she's really to connect with people in ways that really, um, I think they're used to. And that's a format where they communicate with each other. And I think that that resonates with a lot of of Gen Z women in particular. Um, you know, the downsides of that, of course, and I think the larger downsides of social media activism, um, even though it can lead to more substantive face-to-face -face activism, a lot of Gen Z Americans I spoke with are concerned that it's very performative, that essentially will it, you know, it's one thing to retweet a post of AOC or to uh, share an article that's written about in another you know, newsletter or what have you uh, to your friends, but that will that actually lead to substantive change in terms of policy? Because in reality, to change policy, you need to actually have elected officials introduce policies in their state legislatures or in their city councils or in Congress. And so the mechanisms of change sometimes um, are not as simple as posting a video on Snapchat. Victoria, if it's okay, I want to kind of segue into our, our cancel culture, uh, you know, sort of topic of this conversation. Um, if, do you, could you define what cancel culture is for us, you know, kind of on a very simplistic level, I suppose? Yeah, so, you know, not all Americans even know what cancel culture is, right? This is kind of, I think, the purview of the very politically connected and socially aware. But I would say that cancel culture is this idea among, especially people on the political right, who feel as though... Um, if some, a public figure makes a misstep, right, says something that might be viewed as racially offensive or sexually offensive to, to that extent, um, society really condemns them, especially on social media, and tries to prevent those voices from being heard. I think many conservatives on college campuses would say that it goes further in the sense that there's a lot of pressure to not allow um, conservative voices to be heard on campus, whether that means protesting and culture coming to your college campus, or even I think for, for some conservatives, and I, I interviewed uh, conservatives for my book as well, I think there's a sense that they feel that their viewpoints are not accepted. And so there's almost a self-censoring as well. 
So I think all of those things kind of together embody what cancel culture is. Um, it's certainly something that is more driven by the right wing of American politics than the left wing in the sense that it's a viewing it as problematic. So if you look at surveys of younger Americans who are democratic, they view this as not really that big of an issue. If you look at surveys of young Americans who are um, Republican, this is viewed as a very serious issue for them. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of commentary from the conservatives saying that there's like this death of, of American universities because there's no freedom to explore ideas in American classrooms. Um, and, and part of that is because people, students may feel the need, if they are conservative or want to express conservative views, to, to not express them because they're afraid that they're going to be barraged by critics and be canceled, quote unquote. Um, from from your research and from what you're exploring, do you, do you believe that that voices are being suppressed in either way? Um, do you believe that that students don't have as much freedom to express themselves um, in universities? Or or I know you, I know you mentioned in your in your research that your you conservative people students feel this way, but is that an actual reality that you can see? really hard to document, right? So if you go on um, Turning Point USA or Campus Reform, some of the um, watchdog organizations that try to document this sort of thing, there are, of course, egregious examples of, of uh, voices being tried to be tampered down. But is an antidote the same thing as plural? <laughs> and so it's really hard to actually, there hasn't, I think, honestly, been a lot of really good data collection on this. Um, you know, my experience is that on the one hand, the Republicans that I interviewed for my book, you're part of Gen Z, um, they feel that pressure. That's something that came up a lot among, again, I'm, but I'm, of course I'm speaking with Gen Z Americans who are a lot more politically engaged and, and aware. And that really is probably more of the exception than the, than the role. Um, you know, at the same time though, I feel like the, the charge that all you know, universities and college campuses across the, the country are um, somehow, um, you know, purposely sort of suppressing the viewpoints of conservatives really doesn't, I think, you know, comport with what I've seen on college campuses and talking to my friends who are teaching on college campuses. So I think the reality is that it's a little more complex than that. But I do think it's a very popular tagline that sort of feeds into a lot of the alienation that some conservatives feel, you know, I, I think that the sense that there's an alienation there is real for them. I think that's true, that sense of it. The extent to which, you know, voices are really suppressed on college campuses, I think we don't really know. And I think maybe perhaps is a little bit overblown. My kind of like question or our thoughts, I guess, about cancel culture is to me, like I, my mind goes to, you know, the Dr. Seuss books, um, the Uncle Ben and Aunt Jemima uh, brand name kind of thing. And I guess like how, like how do you do cancel culture properly, I guess is the right way to phrase it. Like, is there, do you just, you know, get rid of everything that, that has ever offended someone or could possibly offend somebody? Or is there kind of like a process and like analysis of how to go about figuring out these things, you, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, that's a really good question. It's not like there's a cancel culture police headquarters, right? That kind right. of goes <laughs> minds for these things. And I would also say too that, um, you know, like for example, a number of Hollywood celebrities have 
often been canceled, you know, initially, whether it's Kevin Hart, because former tweets that were viewed as homophobic came out, or Scarlett Johansson, I think, said that I should be able to play any character, male or female, you know, whatever, that's what acting is. And so there is sometimes an initial uproar over those sorts of things, but then, you know, I don't think that they've been blackballed for life. And so it's, it's, it's a really good question. You know, I think that, again, that might speak to the fact that this notion that Hollywood has this sort of um, ability to, I don't know, to, to go and, and do things and say anything they want. I, I just feel like in some respects, the cancel culture narrative might be a little bit overborn, but certainly I think that more research needs to be done on, on that topic. Absolutely. One part of your research that um, caught my attention was the impact of masculinity in American politics. And I'm kind of curious to know, is the, the ideal American leader, the definition of an ideal American leader, is that changing? And well, I guess first we can talk about like the impact of masculinity in American politics and then segue into that. But, but more along the lines of the, the, I, the ideal leader usually has, is usually like a tall, um, like, oh, like has, a, has an overbearing presence and has a good voice, is a good speaker and, and looks healthy and sometimes looks young. And if they don't look young, then they usually, they just symbolize power. Mm-hmm. Is that changing? Yeah, that's a really good question. So my research has looked at Americans' attitudes about masculinity and then kind of how those things have factored into the way that they vote, for example. So just to give you one um, recent uh, report that I wrote, our academic study, um, PRI has this great question. They asked, um, do you think that America has become too soft and feminine? And they've asked it over the last couple of years. And so research that that I've done with uh, Professor Aaron Cassess, who's at the University of Delaware. We took that question to see whether or not it tracked voting for Donald Trump. And as you might not be surprised to find out, <laughs> Americans who said that uh, America has become too soft and thin and worse, much more likely to have voted for Donald Trump um, than, um, than Hillary Clinton in 2016. Um, I haven't had a chance to replicate that in 2020, but my sense is that we probably find similar findings. You know, I think the reality is, is that we still, Um, most Americans have asked to close their eyes and to picture what a political leader looks like, the default category is still men, in part because just look at the number of governors. I think we currently have nine that are female out of 50. Um, That's kind of at a record high. Um, The reality is, is that most elected officials are men. And uh, I think most Americans grow up in a a culture where men tend to be, um, I think, you know, especially as executives in this country. Now, of course, there's Nancy Pelosi, we have Kamala Harris, the first female vice president. Whether or not that changes, I think it's going to be interesting to uh, to kind of take a look at. I think there are some signs that it might be changing. I think for Gen Z, kind of getting back to my other research, I'm finding Gen Z women are a lot more engaged in politics than their male counterparts. And I think that if you have all of a sudden you have more elected officials who are women, and of course, women are, they, they, they really range too, right? It's, it's kind of oftentimes, I think we tend to think of women as all being liberal and, and that sort of thing, but that's not the case. But I think if we have a political system where you have more diversity of views and, and leadership that is more diverse, both in terms of gender and race, I think our ideas about what leadership will be will change. Um, but in reality, especially at the presidential level, we still, I think, tend to think of um, the ideal leader as being someone who is masculine. So those that masculinity ethos, I think, still exist, um, for better or for worse, I guess you could say. 
And you mentioned, um, you know, how, you know, certain people kind of are looking at the United States or people in the United States as being too soft or too, you know, femme. Um, and that kind of makes me think of, you know, the, the recent Simone Biles situation, if we don't mind kind of talking about that, you know, she decided to, you know, remove herself from the games because of um, she cited her mental health and everything. And people, you know, attacked her, you know, obviously there was people supporting her and saying, you know, this is amazing, like for you to do this and, and showing that, that, you know, mental health is important. Like we're proud of you. This is courageous. And then of course the other side was, you know, cry baby, blah, 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 that kind of sentiment. So how does that kind of tie in with this, you know, hyper-masculine culture that we live in and trying to break down those barriers with these, you know, younger generations and, and saying, you know, no, this is something that's, that's actually okay to do. Well, I think that I don't want to speak about Simone Biles as much because I'm not really a sports analyst or, you know, um, and I think what I took away from that episode is more that Americans seem to be more receptive to the fact that mental health is important. Um, and there were some voices, obviously, that said, you know, she should have just kind of muscled her way through this. And this is just endemic of all the weakness that we have as Americans. My sense is that those voices were, you know, while loud, really didn't represent, I think, most of what Americans thought about that episode. Um, but you are right, right? I do feel like there is this um, pool of, of masculinity as being the norm of being strong and, and, and kind of linking that to uh, concepts of America writ large that still, I think, are pervasive in a lot of our political culture. And I do think, too, you know, part of it stems from what narrative political candidates are also, in fact, uh, talking about. So if you look at how Donald Trump has run his campaigns for president, both in 2016 successfully, 2020 not so successfully, you know, there is this idea that he doubles and triples down on being tough and strong. And, and that appeals to some voters, absolutely, in, in American politics. Um, but you didn't get the same sense. I felt that those themes were really present when, for example, um, Barack Obama ran against Mitt Romney or Barack Obama ran against John McCain. Uh, and so I think that part of the extent to which masculinity plays into politics is the extent to which you have candidates that are, are basically using those issues as campaign platforms. And I think Trump is sort of an extreme example, almost, almost kind of retro back to you know, a much earlier time. And I will say this, there are some Republican candidates running for Congress or state legislature that take that even more to the extreme. You know, I think candidates um, running for state legislative office who are at monster truck rally, you know, rallies or, or riding bulls, you know, and obviously there's an element of the base that that appeals to. I don't think, however, that most Gen Z Americans would say that this is what they want in American politics at all. I have one more question. I don't know if Emily has um, any other questions or one more question or anything like that. One? Okay. Um, so my question has to do with the, the, um, your, your research on Gen Z. Let me see. I have it right in front of me, so I won't get the title wrong. Um, religion in public. Um, Gen Z, Generation Z and religion, what new data show? Data, I can never say that word. I apologize. That's okay. <laughs> um, so so kind of just focusing on the what's next, <clears throat> like what's the, the next, um, uh, when it comes to like religious data collection and um, what currently data is showing is that um, gender, uh, where was it? Hold on, let me find, uh, oh, that uh, scholars should pay more attention to how minority groups 
are starting to shift their religious behavior. Um, wh why do you say that? And um, what, what kind of um, predictions or, or what are you forecasting for, for the future when it comes to politicians? Yeah, so one of the reasons I, I said that is that um, we, of course, as you guys probably are aware, the census figures came out and we are a rapidly diversifying country in terms of race and ethnicity. And uh, Gen Z is essentially going to be a, a generation that is my majority minority. So you're going to have fewer white Gen Z Americans than ultimately you'll have in terms of those who are a racial or ethnic minority. And also we saw from the census data uh, that you had a much greater number of younger Americans saying that they're mixed race, right? So that's kind of also, I think, really interesting and telling. Um, so historically, when it comes to religion and politics, uh, one area that I think is really fascinating is to look at the role of the church the, uh, to African-Americans, right? So the Black church has always been central to the organization of, of Black Americans politically. Black Americans tend to be far more likely to be Democratic um, than, than Republican. And so I think it's interesting, some recent trend data is showing that Gen Z Americans, while Black Americans, while still um, more religious than their white counterparts, are actually less likely to be involved in their churches as well. And so that to me is a really interesting sort of development because of the centrality of the black church in American politics. Does that mean, for example, they're more open to republicanism in the future? Maybe, and Trump in fact, I think um, made some inroads with black male voters and Latino male voters, you know, this last election cycle. So that's kind of where I'm interested to see where those trends are going to be going. Um, so the, the idea that younger Americans are less religious is one that is spanning uh, racial and ethnic categories. How that all shakes out is something that's going to be interesting to figure out in terms of our politics in the future. Definitely. And, and my last question for you is kind of like, a little off to the side, <laughs> but um, I'm wondering, you know, this this past election um, was, I think, for a lot of Gen Zs, maybe their first experience voting in a in a primary election. Um, and you know, data showed that a lot of them, majority of them, did vote um, for for the Democratic Party um, in this election. So I'm curious to know, like, have you? gotten any response or heard any sentiment from you know people in this generation about you know how they're feeling about the progression of this this um this administration and this leadership because we're kind of you know nearing the the end of year number one so i'm kind of wondering if you've heard any feedback of, of how they're feeling about this presidency um that's a good question um i haven't really you know i think in my interviews with activists i've asked a few questions there i think they've been happy about um, some decisions, for example, Biden's willingness to reenter the Paris Climate Accords was very important to Gen Z Americans who care very passionately about the climate. And this is one issue, in fact, where we see Gen Z Republicans caring a lot more about the future of the planet. And so that's kind of an issue that I'm finding to be very interesting. Um, when it comes to things like greater acceptance of gay rights and climate change, Gen Z Americans, even those who are Republican care more about this than older Americans. So I think Gen Z Americans have been happy about some of Biden's, um, uh, I think more symbolic moves, which means going back into the climate change, of course, putting an emphasis on infrastructure, healthcare, um, you know, in wake of COVID as well, I think many Gen Z Americans feel like he's done a pretty decent job, at least those who are on the political left. Um, but, you know, there's also a sense of impatience among the most liberal progressive of a lot of Gen Z Americans because they, you know, they're from marching in the streets. They'd like to see, I think, um, 
more um, policies regarding racial equality be enacted and talked about. So it'll be interesting to see over the course of four years um, what happens and how they rate uh, Joe Biden's administration. Now, I don't think what will happen is that if they're if you have a progressive Gen Z American, um, you know, who's frustrated with Biden, I don't think they'll necessarily become a Republican because you know they tend to be very progressive, but. I think one of two things could happen. They could just essentially become less involved in politics, right? Drop out or decide to, you know, be, be affiliated with no party or maybe start a third party or something to that effect. And so it'll be interesting to see how that those trends shape out in the next couple of years um, as we, you know, spend more time in, the, in a Biden administration. Awesome. Well, I think that was all the questions we had for you. So thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your day to talk with us about this really fascinating topic. We really appreciate it. And you guys, this is going to wrap up this episode of What the Politics. Of course, you can always find new episodes of What the Politics on WNCT.com under the Features tab on the WNCT Podcast Network. Of course, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you find your podcast. We're going to link some of this research and articles below that we were mentioning throughout this podcast. So if you please feel free to check those out and we will see you guys next time.